Today's episode is brought to us by CS Instant Coffee, the best coffee for any adventure you're going to go on. Use the code ADVENTURE at csinstant.coffee and get 50% off through September and October. So give it a shot. And we're also brought to you by Rome Products. They make elastic knit minimalist style wallets with all sorts of designs. Get 20% off the perfect minimalist wallet for all your adventures. It'll hold everything you need by going to wheredoyouroam.com and use the code PODCAST with a capital P at checkout. So I decided to count from 10 to 1 backwards. So I, this is literally a close approximation as to what I did. I, I went like 10, 9, 8, 6, 5, 3, 2, 1. I said, that was pretty quick. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm trying to help you find adventure every day in any stage of life. You're going to hear from explorers, adventurers, business owners, and anyone living their life a little more out of the box than usual. Humans have always been fascinated with flying, and in my opinion, or from my observation, I've always thought that hang gliding seemed like the closest thing we could get to flying. You know, it's paragliding similar, but Hang gliding, you've got the wing, you've got, um, you're laying flat like Superman, and it just seems like such an amazing experience. And all you hear, it's like a bicycle, all you hear is the the wind around you going past your ears. Um, Today we're talking to Scott Wise to tell us about this sport. I've never actually done it myself, but I'd love to. And, you know, he's definitely partial to hang gliding versus paragliding. So we talk about some of the differences. Um, but either way, both of them sound incredible, and I hope you get out there and try it yourself. So thanks, Scott, for doing this interview, and yeah, hope you enjoy. And how, how did you get into it? What, what led to that? Did you, did you see an ad somewhere, or your parents help you get into it? Well, it's kind of odd because it was... Uh... In 1974, the summer after I got out of high school, prior to that, I saw an article in Popular Science magazine about hang gliding. And there was something called a bamboo butterfly. And I, my first full-time job out of high school was at a carpet store that had oriental rugs that came with bamboo. They would be rolled up around bamboo uh, poles. So I said, hey, a bamboo butterfly? You know, this is a real. I, I I've always wanted to fly something. Uh, you know, I can take you know pieces of the bamboo, put them together, and get a heavy duty plastic tarp from Sears and adapt it to the to the frame, and I'll have a hang glider. <laughs> Holy cow! <laughs> You're taking. Well, I didn't see the connection. I didn't know there's going to be a connection to a carpet store to your first flying experience. So, so how did that go? <laughs> Well, what ends up is there's a cross tube in a hang glider uh, that goes from one leading edge to the other and then also attaches at the keel. Uh, and that keeps the wing, you know, spread open. Okay. Uh, I wanted something really good for that, so I went to a local hardware store. I used to live in northern New Jersey at the time. Uh, so I went to a hardware store somewhere there, a, ba- a big box kind of place, and I found a dowel hardwood dowel. 
I don't know, it was completely hardwood. It might have been soft, might have been a soft hardwood. Anyway, uh, and it was eight feet. I think it was eight feet long. So the thing is, I knew how what ends up is the wing had an eighty degree nose angle with a ninety degree sail. So what ends up is between the keel and each leading edge, there would be a five degree billow. All right. In other words, if you laid the lead, if you connected the tarp along each edge and then you brought it in, you know, like I said, so you had an 80 degree nose angle, it would create billow, which is what a, a regalo wing looks like. It has billow. The very basic beginning regalos had the billow basically about, you know, like I said, about uh, a five degree billow on each side. So when you went from 90 degrees, which is what the, what the sail was, but then brought the leading edges into 80 degrees, then you got five degrees on each side with the keel holding the uh, the sail down in the very center. So it was equally, uh, it had equal billow on both sides. Yeah, the reason I bring that up is because I put the 8-inch dowel uh, in a place uh, where it would make the nose angle 80 degrees, and I attached what then was called a hang cage. Uh, it's basically just two parallel tubes that you support under your armpits. You know, we don't, we don't fly that way anymore. That's what I copied from the Popular Science uh, magazine. And what ends up is I attached that to that dowel, but it ends up that I didn't know anything about the center of lift. And uh, the place where I attached the hang cage was about maybe a foot ahead of the center of lift. Okay. Well, what ends up is I, I, I only went to a small hill. I didn't do something stupid like go to a cliff and jump. Uh, <laughs> uh, I went to a small hill that I knew about, and uh, I kept running down the hill and nothing was happening. Well, it ends up that the center of lift was behind me. Uh, what you do, what, ha what has to happen is the center of mass also has to be just below the center of lift. So uh, I was ahead of the center of lift. So what ends up is the glider wanted to pick up but it basically hinged uh, around me and the back of the kite was trying to go up and the, let's put it this way, the back of the kite went up, but because I was so far ahead, it was like I was just dragging the hang glider. Ah, I know, it makes sense. All right. Uh, and in fact, the nose would, would drop down as the back lifted up. In other words, the balance was off. It's kind of like a teeter-totter. And I was standing, you know, in front to one side of the center uh, of, of the rotation, center of rotation. So I was standing ahead of that, and that was towards the nose of the glider. So it ends up that the teeter-totter example, the other end wanted to go come up, the end that I'm not standing on. <laughs> and that brought the nose down, but basically the glider just kind of fluttered behind me. It didn't really try to take off or try to cause me to nose in, but no matter how hard I ran, it wouldn't lift off. And that was in the summer of 74. Uh, what ends up is this is where a lot of people, you know, you, you brought up something about did your parents, uh, you know, get well, it ends up that most parents hate the idea that their kid is going to try something dangerous like hang gliding, uh, particularly in those days. Oh, I can imagine, man. Yeah. Flying. Yeah. It'd be better. Oh, I'll pay for lessons for you to fly in a real airplane to learn how to fly in it. Well, my parents didn't have that kind of money. So, but what ends up is in the spring of 75, my mother saw a night school course uh, in, uh, you know, for the local high school. And it included 
a course in how to hang glide. Now, you, it, what ends up is the ground school where they teach you the basics of the wing and how lift works and all that kind of th- thing. In, in fact, they had a they had a hang glider in the in the gym and it was set up and you could pick it up and you could do this. You obviously couldn't fly it there, but you got the basic ground school. That was in I think it was in March. So it wasn't really good flying weather at that point, uh, but too cold. I don't know about April, but between May at least and June and July, I started going out to the site that they had, a place called Mount Peter. Mount Peter was in New York State, but it was just over the border from a place called Greenwood Lake. Uh, that's a that's a real lake, and it was a very small ski area. Probably went up maybe up to four hundred feet. I don't. I never skate. I never skied there. So I never experienced it when there was snow there, but uh, that's where they taught people how to fly, how to slowly progress up the hill as you got more confidence and more skill. That you didn't tell them about your carpet bamboo uh, tarp experience, did you? <laughs> uh, I don't actually. I don't. Re- I don't remember if I did or not. Uh, I probably was paying a lot more attention to what they were telling me right. than than telling stories about what I had tried to do, but. They had real hang gliders that had been manufactured by a company, <laughs> you know, not one where somebody tried to. But I'll tell you, there were a lot of people who did exactly what I did, but did it right. Interesting. So they made their own. Yeah, yeah. And uh, if I had had a longer piece of, let's call it tubing, it might have been exactly perfect. Whether I knew it or not, it may have it may have flown perfectly just because I had the exact right right parts that I put together. It probably was best that it didn't fly though. So what what was that first experience like when you when you got off the ground a successful flight uh were you hooked? What was that feeling? I I in my mind I can picture the first time that my feet were pulled off the ground. I probably only flew about like 30 feet. You know, my my feet may have been dragging through like the taller grass, you know, whatever that was at the at the training hill at Mount Peter. And in those days, you flew seated. They train people to fly prone these days. So I, I was, you know, s- sitting there running, and all of a sudden, my feet leave the ground. And I'm going like, oh, man. Oh, this is amazing. Oh. I, I, and at, at that point, I'm not sure if I would, would even have been able to give you words for how it felt. And it was just, like I said, I was probably a foot or a foot and a half, maybe two feet off the ground over the course of 30 feet. And this is at the very bottom of this, uh, the training hill, uh, what I'll call the training hill. Some people do it because they have a fear of heights or fear of flying and they want to see if they can overcome it. And some people, they don't have the, their body and their mind doesn't understand like three dimensions as well. And they like the idea of flying. Or maybe they had a dream about flying as a kid. So, they, oh, hang gliding. Oh, I can do what I do in the dream. I can just float up and fly. And uh, they come out and they realize that they don't understand things. Uh, they never get in the air, no matter how hard they how hard they try. And they go, oh, uh, okay, I'm just that. That's enough. I'll, I'm I'm not going to go any further. Right, right. I was talking to somebody the other day. I was a gymnast in high school. As a gymnast, you have to understand how your body can move through three dimensions, how it can be upside down, right side up, how it can be going, uh, you know, around a high bar. Your body rotates all over the place and you, you know, you, you do this, that, and the other thing. 
if you haven't got a good sense of th three dimensions, then uh, gymnastics helps you develop that. And I think most gymnasts probably do have a good sense of, of three dimensions. In other words, movement through three dimensions. Very important, somebody who does any kind of flying, the more basic it is, I think, the more you need that. Because uh, an airplane, you sit in a seat. It's like driving a car that can go up into the, <laughs> up into the air. Uh, sailplanes are very similar. You know, they, they, they catch thermals like hang gliders do. Uh, you know, but you're sitting in a, a little cockpit like a car that's just driving along up in the air. Human beings were meant to live in a two-dimensional world, left, right, forward, backward, and you walk. Uh, so I think a lot of human brains don't necessarily have a propensity, at least, to want to be doing what the birds do. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, there's been a fascination for eons, oh, yeah. for sure. And so, you know, this is probably the closest thing you can do. It, to, to me, it kind of seems like the bicycle of the sky. You know what I mean? It's a personal yeah. little vehicle. It, there's no engine. And uh, yeah, you're just up there doing doing your thing. It's similar to a vehicle in the sense you can go places, but uh, yeah. it's quiet. And I'm sure it's very silent once you get up there. The, the myth of silence it, comparatively, let's put it this way, what you have to realize is that an, a, a beginner hang glider probably can fly uh, at about 20 miles per hour through the air. Wow, that's that's uh, slower than I uh, thought you were going to say. Well, this is, like I said, this is like a training glider meant to fly s slow and easy to handle. Now, the comparison is, is most hang gliders between intermediate and advanced, their average speed best glide speed is about 25. If you want to get from, from one point to another when you're soaring above a hill and you're like you're not in lift, uh, then you pull in and you go 30 miles an hour, maybe 35 miles per hour. That gets you to the point where, oh, my variometer, which is an instrument that tells you you're going up, when it starts to beep, you slow back down and then you start to circle in the lift, you know, if it's a thermal in particular. The noise that you hear is let's say just on average a 25 mile mile per hour wind past your ears. I've I've been in airplane in private planes a few times. In order to communicate with the pilot, plus the pilot communicating with the tower over the radio, you have earphones on, just like I'm wearing right now to talk to you. Uh, in this case, it's to prevent feedback. What ends up is is that in an airplane, the motor they have minimal. They don't have like mufflers on a plane because they're high up enough so that the noise doesn't bother people on the ground. Back when I, I live in s South Central New York State, and I used to fly, I used to live in Northern New Jersey and fly in a, at a site called Ellenville, New York. There were days when guys would just there was the lift was so nice that they would dive at the launch site, and not so they could hit anybody, but just for fun, dive at the at the launch site. And then pull back up, uh, you know, with the energy that they got from the momentum that they had achieved. As they went by, at let's say like 40 to 45 miles per hour, as they went by, you could hear the glider. So even, uh, uh, and sailplanes also, uh, you could hear them go by. So, so I know you're, uh, you know, passionate about this, and I, and I want to talk. I think a lot of our guests are probably familiar with with paragliding, just because we've probably had a heck half a dozen, or maybe not that many, but about four or five people be on the show this year um, who are 
paragliders. Uh, what are some of the biggest differences in hang gliding versus paragliding, and why do you you know why is it safer to you? Number one, the most fundamental and most undeniable uh, <laughs> uh, difference between a hang glider and a paraglider is that a hang glider has an airframe. Yes. You know, uh, it has, uh, basically it has solid structure of air aircraft quality aluminum tubing, obviously cabling, you know, like I said, that could pick up, could, could pick up a car. The sail is uh, a medium to heavy Dacron fabric. I've got a hang glider that was in good shape that was made in 1981 and is, I could still fly it today. Uh, paragliders are made of nylon and there may be some kind of treatment that helps them resist UV damage, but nylon degrades very, a lot quicker. I'm not going to say very quickly. I'm going to say a lot quicker in UV rays than Dacron does. Dacron is not completely immune. It degrades. Like I said, I got a hang glider that was made in 1981. I can still fly it today. Uh, it doesn't get flown a lot. So, it's exposure to the sun. It's not like I sit it in the backyard for 20 hours or 10 hours a day, three months out of the year. It doesn't get flown a lot. And I think it got only flown a bit with this previous owner, but it's still intact. So what ends up is, okay, the hang glider has a frame. The frame keeps the hang glider in the shape of a wing. The sail is made of stuff that, of uh, a, a material that is beefier, and longer living, longer lasting than a paraglider's nylon sail. And when it comes down to the air, the, the airframe, a paraglider does not have an airframe. The only thing that keeps a paraglider in the shape of an airfoil is that the that air flows into these vents at the front. Uh, and there's there's been ram air parachutes that skydivers use and the military use for probably 40 or 50 years. Uh, a paraglider is an exaggerated version of that. So that if there's lift, you know, it, it can go up, it can soar like a hangler. It's basically got pockets that are airfoil shaped and the little vents in the front funnel air into those, uh, chambers. There's a series of those all the way across the wing. As long as there's air flowing through those vents and pressurizing the fairly, you know, uh, wimpy kind of nylon, then it, as long as that's happening, it will be an airfoil. As you enter a thermal, sometimes you don't do it so you're facing it straight on. It's invisible for one thing. You don't know it's there until you, for, for the most part, you don't know it's there until you hit it. So a lot of times you hit and think of it like a column of, of well, like a, think of a fireman's hose just being squirted straight up into the air. But imagine it's, it's air and it's bigger. It's 100 feet, 200 feet around. Between a hang glider and a paraglider, one wing can hit that. And it kind of deflects the wing away. And that is one clue that there's a thermal that pushed that wing up. In a hang glider, you just circle back around and you then try to intersect the, the thermal very squarely. So it's like right in the middle, you're, you know, right in the middle of your wing. And then you start going up. For the most part, that's exactly what paragliders do too. The edge of the thermal, if it's very powerful, when the paraglider enters the edge of the thermal, it can actually twist the wing and and fold it up. It can squeeze the air out of the cells that are airfoil shaped. And then probably between 90 and 95% of the time, maybe even 99% of the time, the paraglider flies flies a little bit away from the par, from the 
from the thermal, that part of the wing reinflates, you know, fairly quickly. You know, they either decide it's too strong a thermal or they try to get in it again, and they probably are successful. But what ends up is sometimes the the part of the paraglider that enters the thermal does get the air twisted out of it, and sometimes when that happens, the lines that go down to the pilot that connect the pilot to the to the airfoil sometimes they get twisted up and it prevents the wing from reinflating on that side that can cause a spiral dive to happen to begin happening and if the pilot can't untangle the lines from 15 feet below <laughs> in other words he can't climb up there and fix things if he can't j- j- jiggle the lines and make them you know untangle the, the paraglider will not fly properly and it will it will tend to want to turn in one direction continuously, uh, and basically it creates you know I could I can voluntarily do that in a hang glider you know throwing my weight over all all the way over to one side and and just letting the glider turn like a corkscrew down towards the ground. But a hang glider when it enters a thermal when you hit the edge of the thermal it it pushes the wing up. And you turn around and you say, oh, I know where that thermal is. And then you fly right into it. You never, ever have to worry about part of your wing collapsing. Right. It's on a frame. It's not going to, unless you hit something, it's not going to be collapsing on you. Yeah. And the thing is, there isn't that much to hit in the air. Correct. <laughs> you know, uh, you know you've, got, you've got the possibility of colliding with another hang glider. I've never come close to that. There, wa- there was one time when a hang glider flew uh, in opposition to my turn. Uh, they came out of nowhere, and I was probably about 20 feet over the top of them, and I didn't see them coming. And I, it scared me, but at the same time, we weren't really close enough to collide, but I, I, I was mad at myself because I hadn't seen them. You know, it's actually quite easy in a hang glider when you're flying prone. You can see almost everywhere except up straight through your wing. I had a paraglider make a turn without looking at I could see he was looking in the opposite direction, and he started turning his paraglider, and he was flying like right at me with all their lines. They are very deep. They are tall. A hang glider is only about like six feet thick from top to bottom. Well, a paraglider is about, is about 15 to 18 feet from the bottom of the pilot to the top of the wing. And this guy, his body wasn't flying towards me, but the middle of his paraglider was flying towards me. And the last thing you want is a bunch of paragliding uh, lines caught in your wing because what it's going to do is it's going to pull you down along with the paraglider. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I have to give credit because there's only one case I, I remember, you know, where a paraglider pilot was not watching what he was doing and did that kind of thing. It's not always possible to take a French press or a coffee maker out in the woods with you, but thankfully now you don't have to because there is a great option in CS Instant Coffee. They make 100% Arabica Instant Coffee in compostable packaging. It's perfect for the outdoors or whenever you don't have the time to make a fresh pot. And right now, you can save 50% on your first order by going to csinstant.coffee and using the code ADVENTURE at checkout. 
One of my new favorite pieces of gear is actually my wallet. That's because it's been inspired by simplicity by Rome products. It's a minimalist style wallet, holds my cash, my cards, holds it really tightly because it's elastic. And it's probably eliminated my wallet size down by 60 to 70%. They offer a variety of designs from artistic to patterns and they're machine washable if they get dirty. They come with a little carabiner so you can clip it to things like your keys or your lanyard. And they also offer a complete line of silicone rings with a variety of styles and colors. So if you're tired of carrying around a big bulky wallet, go to wheredoyouroam.com and use the code PODCAST with a capital P at checkout for 20% off. So, so do you have a particularly uh, memorable story or experience where you were up in the air or something either you just enjoyed or something that was really scary? Um, something that sticks out to you that says, this is why I do this. I One thing I would probably go back to is the very first thermal that I encountered. When I started hang gliding, there were very few hang glider pilots who knew anything about thermals. This is where a sailplane pilot would. Fairly early on, one of the hang glider pilots that I knew in the site called Ellenville, which is where I basically started my my high mountain flying, he, he was a sailplane pilot. He had a private pilot's license, a sailplane license, hang glider pilot, obviously. And uh, he could also instruct in basically ballooning, gliding, pri- and pri- a small plane. And I think he tried to tell us what a thermal was. This is like when I was 19. Oh, by the way, I got my very first, I ordered my first hang ladder on July 4th of 1975. I was very, I was very patriotic. Right. It was a red, white, and blue. <laughs> it was red and black. It wasn't, it was red, white, and blue. Ah, it was enough. like, actually, actually it was an orange. It was orange, blue, and black. I don't know why exactly I chose those colors. Anyway, uh, what ends up is usually you had what were called sled runs. Uh, which is means you take off and you just glide down at a constant glide uh, down to the landing zone and you land. And sometimes there was ridge lift, you know, where the wind would be coming up the mountain and you could stay up a little longer. That my basic, my first hang glider had what would be referred to as a four to one glide ratio. Every four feet horizontally that you go, you drop one foot. To give you an idea of the current glider I have, its top glide is 15 to 1. A big difference, but getting back to the my first hang glider, it was the, I don't know exactly what, it was a, a, a nice sunny day. I'm done flying over the hill. Uh, there's not enough lift to stay up. So I come out over the, over the landing area. I start to turn uh, in order to uh, adjust my altitude to come into land. And I turn and I'm thinking like, I'm not going down. I don't know what's wrong. I'm not going down. I kept turning. <laughs> For probably between two and three minutes, and I never lost any altitude, there's nothing besides a, a, a strong thermal that could have explained that. And uh, and I think when I landed, somebody said, yeah, you were in a thermal. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, and uh, that was the very first time I encountered a thermal. And uh, I didn't have any instruments at that time. The, these days, uh, people usually have an altimeter. Uh, a lot of times it's a combination all-in-one instrument, which has an altimeter. Uh, it has a variometer. It's like an extremely sensitive barometer. You go higher in the air, 
the air pressure decreases. So as you're climbing altitude, it can measure those minute differences in pressure as you go higher. And uh, the electronics in it put out a little beep. And usually when you're going up, it go, it's beep, 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 beep. If you're going down, it's boop, 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 boop. What goes up must come down. So there's sometimes there's sync. So that's when it tells you you're going down. But I did not, you know, when it comes down to a variometer, I didn't even know what a variometer was at that point. Uh, people who flew sailplanes would know because they had them, they've had them for a long time. But I didn't know anything. I didn't have an altimeter. I didn't have a variometer. I was just going like, what's going on? <laughs> I can't get down. <laughs> Man, it's just... Sounds awesome. Um, if someone was interested, how would they how would they get started in this? I recommend. Uh, I, I assume you'd recommend not uh, saving bamboo sticks and buying a tarp from Home Depot. Yeah, no, yeah, I would not recommend that. Uh, <laughs> uh, do lots of investigation if you decide you're going to try something like that, and only fly from a hill that lets you fly like five feet off the ground. Don't fly anywhere higher than you want to fall from. The other side of it is is that. Um, it's always best to, uh, find an instructor and somebody can just type into, you know, into their browser on the internet. They'll most likely be led to the United States hang gliding and paragliding association. And, uh, that's be one of the top links. I know there's a club in Rochester, New York, uh, not very far from me who during the summer, uh, trains people how to fly. You have to join the club and you also have to pay for the lessons. So it's, I think it's a little bit more, it may be a little bit more than you actually have to pay at a, just a hang gliding school period. You know, what I worry about all the time is that if there's a place that teaches paragliding and hang gliding, I have heard on multiple occasions that you go there and you say, I want to learn how to paragl, I want to learn how to hang glide. And they go, oh no, no, that's too dangerous. You want to learn how to paraglide. And the thing is, is that uh, a paraglider is made for pennies on the dollar in Asia somewhere, usually. The person who wants to get you to do that, to, to paraglide, is going to make a lot more money than a hang glider that is made in the country where it's sold. In the United States, Will's Wing is one of the, the biggest manufacturers and one of the longest uh, running manufacturers. They make all their gliders right here in the United States. And I've been to the factory you know, it's an amazing investment in technology. You know, when you've got a bunch of people putting something together over in Asia, uh, they're never going to fly it. The people who make the hang gliders at Will's Wing, they take them out and test them to make sure that, they, that, they're, that they're adjusted properly and fly nice and straight and all that. Their life is on the line if they don't make a good product. You know, but uh, bes that's besides the complexity of a, of a, of a paraglider. In fact, uh, a friend has told me, has explained that a hang glider is the simplest form of sailplane. A paraglider is the most complicated version of a parachute. When you add complexity, you add the possibility of failure. Yeah, there's more more moving parts, more things that can go wrong, for sure. Same with bicycles. Yeah. You know, the more shocks you add, you know, whether it's, you know, hardtail or, or softtail, the more it's going to add some comfort. Sure. But, uh, you know, for something that that's potentially hazardous, it could, it could add some points where it could fail. Hang gliders are really quite simple. The problem with a hang glider is that it weighs more than a paraglider. When you break it down into its basic package from being all set up as a hang gliding wing, 
It's probably about 11, 12 inches in diameter inside the bag, but the bag is about 18 feet long. And you have to have a rack on your car uh, to carry it. When it comes down to the difference between paragliders and hang gliders, a paraglider you can throw in a big back sack and you can put it in your trunk uh, and you can take it out. And if you have to hike up a, up a hill, it's not impossible to do it. A 60 to 80 pound hang glider that's 18 feet long, you know, it's an effort to carry it on your car. It's an effort to carry it if you have to go from your car to where the launch site is. And it's almost impossible to try and hike it up a big mountain, you know, up like a 500, 800 foot hill, unless there's a nice, easy, easy path to go. And uh, even that would take a lot of endurance and strength because you, you got this, this, all this weight on one shoulder as you're walking along. And uh, so there's, there's advantages to paragliders. In along those lines, a hang glider pilot might say, well, the paraglider pilot's just lazy. And a paraglider pilot might say, well, they're just idiots because they, they can't, they can't put it in the trunk like I can. You know, there's, there's, and there's, there's every, every perspective between there, how hang glider pilots look at paragliders and how paragliders look at hang glider pilots. They can land in smaller areas than a hang glider can. That's for sure. Uh, but if they encounter turbulence, like low level turbulence, uh, what we call rotor coming off of objects like trees or buildings, if they encounter that and they're 50 feet up and that causes the wing to partially deflate, they can have a very bad landing. Whereas a hang glider, that doesn't happen. You know, we actually build up speed coming into land. I always fly probably at least 30 to 35 miles per hour until I get in what's called ground effect, which is when you're, when the wing is very close to the ground, it's kind of like uh, floating on a, on a, on a layer of air that's compressed between under the wing. That's a simple explanation. There's more complicated ones, but, and, you know, and, and, and from that point, you let the, you let your speed uh, bleed off and then you flare at the right time. And and you're taught how to, how to know when the right time is. And you have a, a fine landing. My favorite story is one that involves getting really high in altitude at in Telluride. You know, I had a a moderately expensive analog mechanical altimeter. It was basically a hiking altimeter. I think Gishard was the name. Anyway, it was not properly comp- pressure compensated. So what ends up is the higher you got, the more inaccurate it got. I was at what I thought was sixteen thousand, yeah, sixteen thousand feet according to my altimeter. And a friend who was a lawyer was flying near me, and we both saw each other. You know, uh, sometimes we had radios. I know that I didn't talk with him. Uh, maybe I just didn't have a radio that day. So we didn't communicate, but I saw him, he saw me. And I was still going up in a thermal. So I kept circling, and I said, well, you know, we're only allowed to go up to just shy of 18,000 feet because – 18,000 feet and up is where commercial jet traffic is. And because you're so small, a jet could fly and cause turbulence that kills you or throws you out of the air, or they could hit you. So you're not allowed to go over 18,000 feet. I keep climbing. My friend goes somewhere else flying around the valley of Telluride. And, uh, and I got, you know, to what my inexpensive hiking altimeter uh, said was just shy of 18,000 feet. And the thing was, I, I, I definitely felt giddy, giddy 
This is where what ends up is when you get it to a certain altitude, there's not enough oxygen for your lungs to absorb it. It's called hypoxia. So I decided that I'm going to uh, figure out if I have hypoxia. And like I said, I was feeling giddy. I was feeling very happy that I'd gotten that high. I decided that I'm going to sing a song and make sure I remembered all the lyrics. It was probably a Beatles song because that was, you know, <laughs> they were my favorite group and still are. And uh, But the thing is, as I was singing, I said, I'm remembering everything. And then I thought to myself, I've heard of people who have strokes who can't talk, but they can sing. So I said, maybe this isn't the best way to test. So I decided to count from 10 to 1 backwards. So I, this is literally as a close approximation as to what I did. I, I went like 10, 9, 8, 6, 5, 3, 2, 1. I said, that was pretty quick. And then I said, that was too quick. I did it again, and I caught the numbers that I forgot, that I didn't remember. And I said, oh, man, yeah, yeah, you're messed up. And I kept on doing I did it once or twice more where I did, got all the numbers uh, right. I said, yeah. And what I did is I did I did what in a hang glider is a spiral dive uh, voluntarily, as opposed to a paraglider that has a partial collapse that will also do a spiral dive. I, I pulled in the bar as far as I could and then pushed it to the side. That basically does a corkscrew and you can, you, you can, you lose a thousand feet of, of altitude in about a minute uh, doing that. And uh, I, I did that for at least a couple minutes. And what ends up is I, I continued flying. I landed. And then I asked this friend at some point later when I met him, uh, now, he was a lawyer. He had the best instruments you could buy. I said, what did your altimeter tell you as far as how high we were when we met, uh, you know, uh, while we were flying? And he said, uh, we were just a little bit under 18,000 feet. My altimeter was saying 16. His really good one was saying wow. 18. So that means that I climbed up to 20,000 feet. <laughs> there with the planes. Yeah, and the thing was, no planes went by me, <laughs> luckily. And it wasn't it wasn't intentional by any means. So, and I think the the statute of limitations has gone by since this was like in the nineteen nineteen ninety or ninety one. Okay. Uh, so you know, uh, you know, but uh, this is again where where I would s- tell anybody who's thinking of trying hang gliding, if you get in, if you get into it and you get instruments, get high quality instruments. You know, don't wing it. And and these days, what I use is I use a, a Garmin hiking GPS, which has a a, a barometric altimeter in it. So it, it's it's my good quality altimeter. Between the satellites, the satellites can actually figure out if you're not on the ground, you know, the triangulation and all that stuff. They can figure out you're not on the ground, and they actually can figure out your, altim- your altitude. But then the barometric al- altimeter that's in the unit also complements that. So it ends up being probably as accurate as my friend's really good uh you know, variometer and altimeter package that he had back in 1991, let's say. That was one of my most interesting flights at a more advanced place. And when I was, well, at that point, I would have probably had my master rating, which I earned in 91. So this is where any, anybody doing aviation, anybody can make mistakes. And it's always best to be conservative and have safety in mind all the time. If I had decided to just keep going up that day and figured, I don't care if I'm giddy. Uh, I'm giddy because I'm so high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I might have passed out and then found myself uh, dead on a rock on top of a mountain where nobody could get to me. Yeah, you would have woke up dead, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
No, you're right. I mean, that's that's uh, you're flying. It's dangerous. But man, well, Scott, I really appreciate you joining us. It's something I'd love to give a shot. I've never done it. And yeah, I appreciate you spreading the word about the sport and, and showing folks, you know, just uh, it's it's probably a sport they haven't heard about in a while. And, and it's something that that still has so much potential and so much ability to, to, to do, you know. One of the joys of hang gliding is when you get good enough, you can fly cross country. I'll make this short. It, uh, one of the good things about it when you get more experience is the ability to fly cross country. Uh, on three different occasions, I flew cross country, which the air was good enough and the lift was good enough so that I flew over the Hudson. That's awesome. Thank you so much. I, I'll, I'm excited to get this out and try it myself. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Right. See ya. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.